Sounds all right. We should always record in here. <laughs> also, this is the library in the town hall. Yes. yes. Yeah, so also, there's something to be said for recording at lunchtime rather than at the end of the working week. Yeah, Don't you think? Yeah, definitely. The energy levels are quite... But I understand why we have to do it, because there's nobody around. So, what are, you, what, what are you going to do while you're here? I know you're not here for long, are you? What am I going to do while I'm here? Yeah. I, I've barely looked at the programme, but you know, <laughs> I was hoping you would tell me that there's something brilliant to go on to after this. Dave Haslam, the, the DJ. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, no, uh, like, he uh, has a book out called Sonic Youth you slept, slept on, on My, my Floor, floor no, which I like. And, and he's being interviewed here at two o'clock by Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth. Well, that does sound, <laughs> does sound pretty unmissable. Everybody always has a good time here. Oh, I love this festival. I was saying to somebody yesterday, this is not just my favourite festival in North London or even Greater London. It's my favourite festival in Middlesex. <laughs> Ignoring the 1961 boundary change. Is it East End or West End? Of which more later no, I think the it's definition. A, I think it's a really brilliant festival and it does loads for the community in Stone Newton. It represents all sorts of voices that other literary festivals don't. And, you know, I'm allowed to come here and my, muck about and do things I wouldn't be able to do elsewhere. So I really love it. It's great I, fun. I won't be able to stay this late, but there's a fabulous um, live poetry thing on this evening with a guy called Tim Wells, who was one of the original zine publishers. He still has his uh, poetry zine that he distributes for free yeah. or niche, as it says on the front, and it's still hand-typed. But he gets amazing, gets Selena Godden and Adele Stripe, and I mean, really good people to, to write for it. Yeah. Uh, and he is Jewish skinhead from... Um, from up the road in Stamford Hill. He's writing for, for for Unbound. Do you remember, Andy, that the New English Library pulp novels of the late 60s, early 70s? Richard Allen. Richard Allen, skinhead. He's writing <laughs> do a London skinhead werewolf novel called Moonstomp. It's 20,000 words. He's already written. It's brilliant. <laughs> hey, you know what? We could get him in to talk about Richard Allen. What a backlisted that would be. Actually, that, you know, he's, and he's a brilliant talker. There was also, the, I, got a, I got a book out <laughs> on the cliff. how we do it, Nancy. This is how the magic happens. I think, you know, he would, well, you remember the Redskins and the, the whole, that whole sort of, oh, yeah, it's all great. Of course. Also, he, we got a, 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 a sort of an anthology of the books of that period, the New English Library period. And some of the titles are great. The one I particularly loved was called You Write Soft Lot. Was <laughs> it <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, I should bring it in actually, because I mean, if you read them at all, there was this Hell's Angels series, and they were, yeah. they, were they were sort of they were perfect coming of age books for sort but of also as they you know ten, eleven, twelve year old boys, and we'd pass them around the class at school and read them because they were really short, but, but, and particularly Skinhead and Squade Swadehead. I mean, they were quite also well as they were as they go on, they it, you know they clearly the publisher has an eye to whatever youth cult might be happening <laughs> yeah. at the time. There's one I've got one called Teeny Bopper Idol, <laughs> which is the which is not necessarily the most promising of uh, starting points, but he manages to get all the violence and uh, sex in there, as usual. Nancy, what are you looking forward to seeing while you're here in Stoke Newton? I was sorry to miss Meg Wolitzer. Yeah. She was last night, yesterday, I think. I don't, I think after this, which I was very nervous about coming on with you guys. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. You were right uh, to me. Yeah. You are right to me. I know. Horrible. I know. We'll, no, be, well, not we'll horrible. be submitting just... our report, obviously, yeah, full report right, afterwards. Right. So I have to sort of get over my nervousness, and then once this is done, then I can sort of take a, a calm look at what's happening <laughs> and uh, make my choices. John, should we just... let's? Should we do it? We're just... It's even more seamless than it usually is. <laughs> what are you reading this week, John? <laughs> Oh, whoa, she took my one line. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us behind the scenes of the Stoke Newington Literary Festival, cloistered in the library of its town hall, swapping bustles for bloomers and preparing to ride our newfangled bicycles out of the 19th century and into the 20th. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and we're joined today by a legendary figure in the world of books and reading. But you're laughing, Nancy, but that is factually accurate. Nancy Pearl is perhaps the world's most famous librarian and surely the only one 
to have an action figure made in her honour. In fact, Nancy's given me this action figure. I'm just going to... Re- this is a proper action figure. It comes like a little Star Wars figure in a box. And she's got a cape on. And she's got it. a cape on. You, said, you told me this is the third one, right? The third iteration. Amazing. This is what it says on this action figure. It's got Nancy. It looks like Nancy. It's clearly modelled on you, right? Closely. Yeah, it's digitised. When an age of darkness comes, a hero must rise. Nancy Pearl librarian she stands against censorship anti-intellectualism and <laughs> ignorance i mean warning choking hazard <laughs> um, this is I mean, how did this come about uh, uh, many years ago i i was my husband and i were at a dinner party and the a ma- there's a company in seattle that makes action figures jesus action figure uh, shakespeare jane austen and he was telling us that people were writing in saying that the Jesus action figure was performing miracles in their lives, healing them. And I said, but, you know, really, the people who really perform miracles every day are librarians, and then, which I believe. Oh, you're good. And then, yeah, I know, I know, that was good. And then somebody else said, oh, Mark, you should make a librarian action figure. And somebody else said, and Nancy should be the model for that. And and then the conversation went on to other things, and everybody kept drinking at the dinner yeah. party. And then we were driving home that night, and my husband said his four favorite words to me, and I'm sure other husbands have their own four favorite words that they say, but my husband's four favorite words are, Nancy, think this through. <laughs> she said, do you really want to be a five-inch, non-biodegradable plastic action figure i said my favorite words are oh this will never happen don't even think about it brilliant brilliant well i holding you in the palm of my hand here <laughs> nancy was for many years the executive director of the washington center for the book at seattle public library and her book recommendation radio broadcasts made her famous first in seattle and then nationally building on this with her best-selling books book lust more book lust and book crush nancy was named 2011 librarian of the year by library journal in short Nancy Pearl is the doyen of book recommendation, <laughs> the book recommender's book recommender. <laughs> and also, we should say that her novel, George and Lizzie, is out now. Hey, you do it all. You literally you read books and write books. Well, I wrote poetry, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call myself. Nancy, best. welcome to Batlisted. We are both absolutely are. thrilled that you we were able to make and time I, for us to do this. I, I, you know, a, a, a cursory glance at Wikipedia also, I've got the delicious news this morning that there is a bluegrass band called the Nancy Pearls. In Australia. In, in Australia. But I don't think they're still, I think that was a long time ago. But still it's good. But isn't that good? At one time. Where's my bluegrass band? Well, the Andy Miller. <laughs> yeah, where's my, there's enough Andy Miller. The backlisted fat back God's band. Yeah. Come on, yeah. people. Yeah. You must yeah. be out there. Get with it. Um, well, the book that Nancy's chosen for us to discuss, I'm, I'm guessing amongst many other things, is Told by an Idiot, Rose McCauley's original and satirical version of the family saga which was first published in 1923 and re-released by virago in 1983 regular listeners will remember that i talked a bit about one of um, rose mccauley's other novels uh, the world my wilderness last yeah. year which i absolutely loved so for me this was such a great excuse to revisit an author i was already keen to read more books by absolutely and i hadn't read at all um, and now feel very very thrilled that i've discovered her Late in life, but... Uh, Late in life? Well. <laughs> it's been a long week, hasn't it? Week. But before we transferred ourselves back to Bloomsbury in the 1880s, Andy, tradition demands that I ask you the question, what have you been reading this week? Thank you, John. I have been reading a novel by Andrew Sean Greer called Less, which has just been published in the UK. It won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction last year. It's about an unsuccessful writer approaching 50 (laughs) who, in order to escape from bad things in his life, travels around the world to a series of underwhelming literary events, (laughs) several of which take place in rooms such as the one we are in now. And it's seen, first of all, I I absolutely love the book. It seems so appropriate to talk about it today. And uh, also almost like a gift from the cosmos, the writer in the book, turns 50 in the course of the book. And I was reading it when I turned 50. And on the day I turned 50, I read the chapter in which he turns 50. And 
I was saying to Nancy earlier that I, it, it sounds so pathetic to say, but it is actually what happened. I both laughed and cried in this book. It, is the, it was such a blessing that this book should have fallen out of the skies to land in front of me at the period that it did. It's such a wonderfully funny, moving, wise book about the first half and then the second half of life. Is it a comic novel? Yes. I mean, the idea that there aren't any funny well, novels just, around at the moment. Just, okay, <laughs> right, that absolutely should have been uh, submitted if it wasn't to, to the, the... But also it seemed really amazing to me. Surprise. I was really fascinated that this won the Pulitzer Prize. Which yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like... Well, I was the chair of the fiction jury for the Pulitzers this year. <gasps> Get, Get out of here! Get out of the room! Coming <laughs> to you Are you serious? Totally. Amazing. Totally. And you knew I was going to talk about this book. You didn't I tell did. me that. No. Oh, my we're, goodness. We're, we're, Andy and I are both assuming our we are not worthy poses oh as my. we speak. Oh, my goodness. God. Don't do that. Yes. So that was... Um, Personally, that was my favorite book of the year. But you know that humorous novels are not normally Pulitzer fodder. And so my fear was when I read the book that maybe there wasn't enough heft to it. Uh And I was so happy when my co-judges, two other women, said, um, I mean, we all felt the same way about that book and then the two other books that were the finalists. Genuinely, you genuinely shook me. Because uh, so now my head is is the questions I'm falling over myself to ask you. I'm so fascinated, as I just said, I just said, I'm so fascinated that this book won the Pulitzer Prize because it didn't seem like the kind of big, hefty, uh, yes. important statement, 600-page right. blockbuster that would usually win the Pulitzer Prize, or I perceive as usually yeah. winning the Pulitzer Prize, and, right? Yes, and you know, this was a year. 2017 was a year of big books. Lincoln and the Bardo, yeah. um, Sing, Unburied, Sing, both. Both, interestingly enough, about the unquiet dead, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was, um, I love that phrase, the unquiet dead. Mm. Uh, and then here were these three books that we ended up, and, and you know, in some awards, I've been on some award committees where you're just fighting. I mean, you're just, you know, nasty things get said between among the judges. But this was surprisingly, we just all sort of came to this agreement on the three finalists the fortunate thing for british uh, readers is less has been published straight into paperback so you, it's out now there were several things i thought were great about it but actually like all the great novels and by the end of the book i was almost holding my breath andrew sean Greer, he never puts a foot wrong in this book tonally yeah when he wants to be funny he's really funny it's really moving when he wants to introduce an intellectual idea. He does so in quite a light way, but lets it float. I mean, it's it's a great novel. Plus, he wore a bright red suit to the Pulitzer Awards, <laughs> and if you sort of, if you look on Twitter, he's posted different pictures of himself. And and I have to say, having met him and interviewed him twice, he's just one of the most genuine, nicest people that I've writers that I've ever you know met. one of the things that I loved about this book John you you and I it could, could have been written for us right it's 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 full of brilliantly observed moments of literary mortification yes <laughs> right is. there is a brilliant line I keep quoting this far and wide there's a brilliant line where Les has flown to Mexico to take part in a literary panel event and his co-panelist drops out at the last minute so the host says, it doesn't matter, I'll do it with you and I'll talk about my work first. <laughs> and, and this is what happens. And he introduces Les on stage after 20 minutes with the work. Let me turn to you now. We were talking backstage about mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> As his opening gambit. So, so I'm just going to read a little bit now. This made me laugh repeatedly. I can't believe Nancy. Actually, I'm fully surprised. Amazing. amazing thing. All right, okay. Arthur Less has been here for three days. He is in New York to interview famous science fiction author H.H.H. Mandon on stage to celebrate the launch of H.H.H. Mandon's new novel. In it, he revives his wildly popular Holmesian robot, Peabody. <laughs> in the world of books, this is front page news. And a great deal of money is jangling behind the scenes. Money in the voice that called Les out of the blue and asked if he was familiar with the work of H.H.H. H. H. Mandon and if he might be available for an interview. 
Money and the messages from the publicist instructing less what questions were absolutely off the table for H.H.H. Mandon, his wife, his daughter, his poorly reviewed poetry collection. <laughs> Money in the choice of venue, the advertisements plastered all over the village. Money in the inflatable Peabody battling the wind outside the theatre. <laughs> Money even in the hotel Arthur has been placed in where he was shown a pile of complimentary apples, he can feel free to take any time, day or night, you're welcome. In a world where most people read one book a year, there is a lot of money hoping that this is the book and that this night will be the glorious kickoff, and they are depending on Arthur Less. Why him? Why did they ask Arthur Less? A minor author whose greatest fame was a useful association with the Russian River School of Writers and Artists, an author too old to be fresh and too young to be rediscovered, one who never sits next to anyone on a plane who has heard of his books. Well, Les knows why. It is no mystery. A calculation was made. What literary writer would agree to prepare for an interview and yet not be paid? <laughs> it had to be someone terribly desperate. How many other writers of his acquaintance said no chance? Half hour, how far down the list did they go before someone said... What about Arthur Less? He is indeed a desperate man. <laughs> From behind the wall, he can hear the crowd chanting something. Surely the name H.H.H. Mandon. In the past month, Less has privately gorged on H.H.H. Mandon's works, those space operettas which at first appalled him with their tin-ear language and laughable stock characters and then drew him in with their talent for invention, surely greater than his own. <laughs> Less's new novel, A Serious Investigation of the Human Soul, seems like a minor planet compared with the constellations invented by this man. And yet, what is there to ask him? What does one ever ask an author except how? And the answer, as Les well knows, is obvious. Beats me. <laughs> I, I cannot recommend this book strongly or enough is, or is more it, enthusiastically. It's is it wonderful. Out? It is out. At, uh, we are recording this on June the 2nd and it is in the shops now. Brilliant. John, what have you been reading this week that Nancy may have... <laughs> judged <laughs> worthy or unworthy interestingly uh, I don't think you, you'd have read it Nancy but I, I hope you will because uh, it's a, a memoir by Sally Bailey who has done two backlisted for us as a, a writer and also I can you know declare an interest she's her book uh, The Private Life of the Diary was published by Unbound but this is a memoir about her childhood a childhood memoir and essentially the theme is reading saved her life mm -hmm. she grew up in a large dysfunctional family uh, one of her brothers died at a young age her mother was had suffered from terrible depression her aunt came to live with them and Sally was uh, was was bright and basically lived a kind of an imaginative life and the, the book is the story of that imaginative life fed initially by Millie Molly Mandy books and then mm. she progressed on to Agatha Christie which she read voraciously and then the book the two books that that, that sort of the, the narrative is almost kind of con constructed around Jane Eyre and David Copperfield. I think the really brilliant thing that she does is she, she never pulls back in a way that other biblio memoirs might, you know, Francis Spufford or even Lucy Magnum, to give you the adult kind of uh, nuanced, in, in, uh, you know, uh, this is the view from now, this is who I am now. Sally's obviously gone on to be an incredibly famous academic, but you have to piece together the story um, through the bits of the narrative, through the evolving child consciousness. And I'll, I'll read a little bit to give you a, a flavour of that, where she internalises these... Jane Eyre in particular becomes a kind of a, an alternative Sally. That, that This isn't just reading a book uh, for the peace and quiet, although it is that. It's, it's iman imaginatively inhabiting the world and interpreting the world and the, the things that she cannot control going on around her by her reading. Uh, it's very, very moving. Sally was turned herself into care. She gave herself into care at the age of 14 because she could just felt that the family environment was... And it was obviously... She went through very, very difficult uh, things that she lived through. It's an amazingly optimistic book. She's the only, I think, the only child in care uh, from the West Sussex Council ever to, to make it to university. So, in a way, her life is her triumph. 
but her courage, I think, in writing it in the way that she writes it is what makes it mm-hmm. as memorable a book as it is. I'll re- just read a little bit. It's also, incidentally, very, very funny, particularly the mother, who is a sort of dominant, deluded, but she never loses her affection for her mother, and it's her mother that gets her to read. You know, she'd be reading proper literature, not, not just children's books. So and this is the, a really terrible supper where the father, who she knows hardly at all, called Laurie, comes back, and they're taking the kids out for a supper. The row went on for a while. I pressed my ear to the door and I heard mum huffing and puffing like an angry wolf and behind the door I could see her face steaming red and the man with no hair, that's her father, Laurie, steaming red, uh, uh, pacing up and down. By the time they came out it was dark and we were getting dressed to go to the beach hotel. Sally, put your dress on with the green collar and velvet hem. I don't want you looking like a rag muffin. Peter, tuck your shirt in for goodness sake. Right, coat's on, do them up. We're going to a nice hotel. I want you to look your best. Paul, go and wash your face. You've got a nasty black streak on your chin. The beach hotel was on the other side of the main road, behind a long stone wall. Around the front and sides grew dark elm trees and pines. Tall lords and ladies, said Mays, that's her grandmother, who also lives with them, who knew all her trees. I thought of Betsy Trotwood. She wouldn't have been happy with the name Beach Hotel. It was too far from the beach to call it that. No, Betsy Trot would have sent a cross note to the manager to let him know that if he had any sort of sensible ideas in his head, he would have called the hotel Pine Tree Lodge or the Elms. <laughs> if you had any practical ideas of life, sir, you would know that you don't call a thing what it is not. If you were expecting a boy, you don't call him Emily. If you are, however, you might call him David. When you're on more certain terms, you might call him Davy, but only after a lot of fuss and hullabaloo. In the name of heaven, there'll only be cause for disturbance and much complaint. And then I thought of Miss Marple. She would have been cross about the lack of a sea view. Well, really, Dolly, I do call this a bit much, don't you? I can't see beyond that dirty street lamp, let alone the beach. Miss Marple looked at her companion, who wasn't paying any attention at all, only pulling at the curtains. Can you see anything, Dolly, dear? And did you bring your binoculars? Of course I did, Jane. Stop fussing. Here, let me have a look. If I can't see anything through these, then I'm going to insist that we are moved. This is distinctly not a sea view. Now, Jane, move that chair. I want to get closer to the window. And be a dear and tuck those curtains away for a moment. I need to get a proper look. Shabby, I call this. Quite shabby. Mm. Dolly lifted her leg firmly onto the chair by the window. The chair wobbled. Jane, will you give me a lift up? Come on, dear, like we used to at school. Hand over thumb and up. Now, lift off. Mind my nylons. But the beach hotel had always been hidden from the sea behind a lovely sea wall, Mum said. Sussex Flint. Mm. The beach hotel was surrounded by Sussex and hidden by stone. I'd never seen the hotel from the front and I would never have dared to go up the white stone steps or through the glass door if Mum hadn't been pushing me hard from behind. Mum! I felt a handbag digging into my back. Go on, in you go, straight ahead, down the hall. But the hall was dark and except for a few peach lampshades stuck to the wall, I couldn't see anything. I stopped and looked and blinked. Go on, Mum said from behind. Hurry up, we haven't got all day. And so it goes on. And the kids are offered grapefruit and bread. That's their that's their treat for the dinner. And then they behave so badly. They say, nobody eats grapefruit at night, Mum. It's for breakfast. <laughs> she says, right, you're all going home and you're not even allowed cheese on toast. But it's 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 a comic scene. I can't but, wait to read but it's what she you can see what she's yeah. doing. Yeah, and it's, yeah. I mean, there are passages that are heart-rending where she's, particularly the Jane Eyre passages, it's it's a brilliant bit of work, I think, and and so and very brave to do because the, you you the, some people who've reviewed it have said you know you still don't really know what went on, and I'm sure that's the point. Right. It's kind of you read it more like a I mean it really feels like a a, a dense and beautiful work of fiction rather than simply a I had a sad childhood. I think one of the things about um, I mean my own experience about writing a book about books and Nancy you've ri- written books mm-hmm. about reading and books about books is I think our our individual sense of what reading means and why reading is important is actually buried very deep yeah. within us and it's difficult sometimes with books about books I think to to respect the that someone doesn't always have the same experience of reading as you do I don't know how you feel about Nancy. That yeah, Nancy. yeah, I mean, I, I've always felt that no, n- no two people, in fact, read a, the same version of any book. You know, we've read three different versions of Told by an Idiot, and mm-hmm. that our our lives inform our reading in this very wonderful 
particular individualistic way. And Paul Auster, the American mm. novelist and essayist, has um, an essay where he says in his books, he, he believes that his books are a collaboration between the reader and the writer, and that he deliberately leaves space for the reader in all of his books. And, and I think that that is, I mean, that's a wonderful, to me, that's the, 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 really the wonderful part about reading is that, is that we're in a collaboration with the writer. I think it's it's such a it's a, such a great way to describe it because I, I I mean you know we often talk about rereading as well which yes. is so it's such a profound experience because you you know it's difficult when people ask you if you've read a novel and you what you can remember of a novel is so small yes. usually it's it's flavors mm. and scenes right. and kind of and, and sometimes you discover that there are scenes in a book that you, you that aren't you there at all yep. <laughs> yes so there's um, a wonderful book by. A, a, a book I hope we end up doing on here one day. There's a wonderful book by Nicholson Baker called You and I about yeah. John Updike, mm-hmm. where he did a fantastic thing in that book, where he he wrote this book about Updike and his love of Updike, and he says to the reader at the beginning, "I'm going to do no research for this, and I'm going to what I'm going to do is I'm going to quote from Updike, and then I'll double check when I finish and see if I if I got it right." And it's full of footnotes where he said, "No, look, I was completely wrong about this. This isn't even by Updike." <laughs> But the relationship that you have with the writer, the sense of what the writer means to you, yeah. is different for for all of us. Right. Why, Nancy? Why? It seems there are many books about books being, yeah, written, published, and even read at, know, right? at the moment. <laughs> Surprising. Why? Why do you think people are so interested in it at the moment? Well, do you think so many people are, or do you think it's just a small group of the same people who are reading all of the all of the uh, biblio <laughs> memoirs? I I think you probably have a point. I certainly think it's something that we're fascinated by. Yes, but some yes. of those books seem to speak to people. I, I mean, I don't know. My pet yeah. theory is that. Uh, which I think lots of people, it's not my pet theory, a theory that I think has some weight, is as everything moves digitally, the sense of, and we are time poor, quote mm. unquote, you, you, the, the desire for the object, not just the object, but a nostalgic sense of what the object might have meant when you had time to read it, mm-hmm. is probably um, pushing its way forward. Um, I mean, I think there are, there are some books that, you know, that are more list books but I mean if you look at what Sally's doing and maybe to an extent what Lucy is doing they're very much memoirs of childhood um, and they're ways of it of that if you are a child that reads a lot it is actually impossible just as we were saying to dis- disentangle your sense of the world from your reading because that's often what's you know your sense of, of, of your developing sense of your own uh, understanding I mean Sally in, 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 in um, Girl with Dove is, I mean, she sets herself up as a, a detective because she'd read all of, of all of right. Agatha Christie. And of course, what you are doing is trying to work out what's happened in your childhood, the, the overheard glimpses of conversation and, and things that adults say that don't make any sense and things that you know are somehow that feel wrong. Or So in a way, that, that seems to me a kind of entirely natural thing to do. I suspect that you know, as usual, Andy, it's publishing, you know, all mm-hmm. look, books about books seem to be doing well. Who could do one of those for us? Oh, <laughs> someone we know. <laughs> <Someone we need. laughs> yeah. But, I mean, your book is totally different. Your book is a completely different. It happens to be about books, but it's much more to do with, um, you're reading dangerously is, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's much more about how literature at a certain point in one's life, why it's, it's a great thing to, to welcome it in mm. and to, and, it, and to keep welcoming it in, I hope. I love your, Nancy, your, is it your 50-page rule? Yes. About, about, yes. Which is, I mean, Andy, as you know, is even more hardcore than that. He won't admit to anyone not finishing a book. But, um, <laughs> I do in a but nice, I'm, in a loving I'm, way, John. In a loving, in a loving way. way. But I'm older. Now, two things. <laughs> so, I, so I have less time, so I have to stop oh, earlier. Okay. I sat next to John Updike just by chance on an airplane. <laughs> and, I mean, just by chance. And and I and I it took me a while to figure out who he was because I thought he was Russell Baker, the American humorist, who also had a very craggy face. Uh-huh. But what I remembered about John Updike was that he was an early fan of Ann Tyler, and uh-huh. and I was an early fan of Ann Tyler's as well. 
so I mentioned when I finally figured out who it was, because I kept looking over to see what he was reading and trying to look at his briefcase, hoping there were initials because he was reading a biography of um, of um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. And so when I finally figured out who he was, you know, and he saw me yeah. looking at the book and he said, um, he said, oh, I'm writing an article for the New Yorker. And then I knew it wasn't Russell Baker because <laughs> I knew it was John Updike. And, um, and so he said, oh, by the way, I'm John Updike. And I, so I said, I know, <laughs> right. which was really great. But then I got to recommend Bud Schulberg's book called The Disenchanted, mm. which has um, a small section or part, I think, that um, F. Scott Fitzgerald is, is a um, character in that, which he said he had not read or he should have should reread. So so that was pretty exciting. I told you my Cormac yeah. McCarthy story, haven't I? Go you sat next to Cormac McCarthy. No, it was worse, much, much worse than that. <laughs> I was at, a, I was at, at the... You know, American weddings go on for days. So Gary Fiskett, John, edit, uh -huh. editor at Knopf, was getting married. And he'd invited me to the wedding. And we. the next day, his pal, Morgan Entrican, was hosting the lunch party. I didn't know that many people there. But I noticed there was a really quiet-looking guy standing in the corner with a kind of a fairly nondescript jumper on. And I went and just sort of struck up conversation. And, we, you know, perfectly nice conversation about how much I enjoyed being in Tennessee, never been before. I said, "What do you? Are you a friend of Morgan's?" He said, I, I, "I'm a writer, and Morgan has published me in the past." And I said, "Great. Well, anything? Do you think? I mean, I'm English. I reasonably well read anything." He said, "I don't know. You might know a book called All the Pretty Horses." So I did. I did have my. <laughs> I mean, I just I was I, as you know, rarely speechless. But I said, "I He said, "Yeah, that, that's me." I said, "Very." Much a fan of your work. <laughs> no, no, I found it really, really difficult. I've like just got to go, yeah. <laughs> go and get a drink. Let's pick this up again shortly. I've got something here. You know, as we we move into talking about told by an idiot and talking about Rose McCauley, I've got an essay here from Rose McCauley's book, Personal Pleasures. And Rose McCauley wrote a lot of books. We will we will come yeah. on to this, but I have a, and here is her essay on reading. Oh, great! Oh, wow. This book is long, long out of print. I have an edition which was republished in the 60s and it hasn't been in print since then. So I'll just read a tiny book from her essay, Reading. And this is a book, Personal Pleasures. It's, it's, uh, it's things that Rose Macaulay in the 1930s, I think some of these would have been written for Punch. And uh, so they're things that, that made her happy. Essays include astronomy, canoeing, Christmas morning, not going to parties. Doves in the chimney. <laughs> um, Sounds great. Ignorance. And there's the one on reading. My humble dwelling room becomes a salon where I receive, without even troubling to rise or bow, an extraordinary miscellaneous crowd or rabble of persons, chattering in all tongues on all topics, in verse, in stately prose, in strolling colloquial late Stuart slang, in round and booming Johnsonian, in demure and ladylike Austinian, in sly and delicate Proustian, in gay modern English and French. Many are pompous, foolish, absurd, many have wit, many have ideas, many have neither. <laughs> what is the extraordinary pleasure that we derive from this pastime? Why do we forget everything for it, feel by it transported, enlarged, enslaved, freed, impassioned, enlivened, soothed, drugged, delighted, distressed, entertained, sharpened in wits, ennobled in soul, winged in imagination, gratified in humour, stirred to pity, rage, love, rapture, enthusiasm, creation, zeal for learning, infinite zest and curiosity for life? I do not know, nor anyone. And in the end, it wears down our eyes, never intended for this strange and crabbed use, so that we have to read through discs of magnifying glass. As to our health, quote, the man whom about midnight, when others take their rest, thou seest come out of his study meagre-looking, squalid and spalling dost thou think that plodding on his books he doth seek how he shall become an honester man there is no such matter no indeed concludes rose macaulay still 
he has enjoyed his reading. <laughs> That's brilliant. This is a wonderful book. Anyone really? who's listening to this Absolutely. now, Personal Pleasures by Rose McCauley. Wow. But that whole section could have come from Told by an Idiot. Really could. I mean, it, it? It, you know, there's. I have a, a section here where Imogen is, that's how you, you pronounce yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Where she's talking about, as a teenager, Imogen was quite content. She was, as always, busy writing stories and sunk deep in her own imaginings, which were still of a very puerile sort. Imogen read a great deal, but was not really intelligent. It was as if she had not yet grown up. She knew and cared little about politics or progress. Bernard Shaw was to her merely the most enchanting of playwrights. She was happy, drugged with poetry, her own and that of others, and adventurous dreams. She was a lanky slip of an undeveloped girl, light-footed, active as a cat, but more awkward with her hands than any creature before her. So it's getting to this reading part. At once a romantic dreamer and a tomboyish child, Loving school, her friends, active games, bathing, climbing, reading and writing, animals, W.B. Yeats, Conrad Kipling, Henry Seton, Merriman, Shelley, William Morris, Stevenson, a mm, Shropshire mm. lad, meringues, battleships, marzipan, Irene Van <laughs> Bru, B-R-U-G-H, Granville Barker, and practically all drama. Hating strangers, society, drawing room meetings, needlework love stories, people who talked about clothes, sentimentalists, and her aunt Amy. I, I mean, isn't that I, that it, it just her dreadful seemed, aunt Amy her as well? Her dreadful aunt Amy, aunt Amy in this right. book. She, yes. she's a great character. Imogen, have we got? Where we, we, we yes. should we should sort of start talking about about this book in a bit more. Yes. Clarity. But that reading thing is so interesting, and, and you know the point she makes about glasses. It's uh, there's a book I love called The Glass Bathyscape by Alan McFarlane, which basically posits that without glass, that the reason that that Western civilization, the Renaissance, Renaissance, pretty much everything happened was the was the discovery of glass. He said if the Chinese had had glass, in fact they had it and they didn't have much use for it because they liked porcelain. You know, they were so far ahead at one point in, in terms of civilization, they, they would have been uncatchable. But because we liked wine, the Romans liked wine, and that, that we developed, because he said, just one example being spectacles, that it doubled the life of a scholar. So, you know, had yeah. you been working by candlelight, by tallow lamp, with just your own eyes, trying to read and write, by the age of sort of 40, you were, you were absolutely finished. Whereas glasses, spectacles, which were developed in the early in the 14th century, and and he goes on to make a, a, you know, scientific retorts, and there's a whole the, the whole argument. It's it's a really interesting book, but it does make me think that that you know we read, but we do ruin our <laughs> we do ruin our eyes doing it. Yeah. Um, well, as a recent yeah, convert convert to, to spectacles, yeah, uh, I'm all for them. <laughs> They've allowed me to, to yeah, carry exactly, on reading. Exactly. So um, anyway, Nancy, back to back to Rose. Rose McCauley, yes. told by an idiot. Where were you? when you first found this book or this author? Well, like both of you, I worked in a bookstore, a wonderful bookstore called Yorktown Alley Bookstore in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And in 1982 and 83, um, Dial Press, the American publisher, part of Doubleday at mm -hmm. that time, brought out the Virago books that were published in England. And they, rather than that green cover that all the Viragos had here, they did them in a very distinctive black cover with a painting. And we got, because we were that kind of bookstore, we got all of the, all of the uh, Virago books. And I just went on a tear reading them yeah. and I so it was 1983 I'd gotten a master's degree in history with a sort of emphasis on British history and so I was you know very interested in in that and so all these great British writers that I had not some I had heard of but not read but told by an idiot was one of my absolute favorites and so reading it again now f almost 30 years or 40 mm, years, mm. almost a long time a long later, time um, it, it's, it was an entirely different book for me. And, well, I said earlier that, that Rose McCauley wrote many, many books. One of the things that I was surprised about, actually, how few of her books are, are easily available now. Yeah. She's the author of some, it's something, 23 or 24 novels. Yes. And uh, probably an equivalent number of books of 
non-fiction poetry. She was a brilliant essayist, books of travel writing, studies of Milton, E.M. Forster, history, posthumous volumes of letters, very well known in her day. Right. One of the great literary lionesses of the late 19th to mid 20th century, most famous probably for her novel, her last novel, The Towers of Trebizond, which we'll come on and talk about in a bit. But actually there's only three or four of her books currently in print or seemingly in print since she died. I mean, uh, which is fascinating. I think if you'd said to somebody 30, 40 years ago that she would become a backlisted author, they would say, no, that's ridiculous. She was a best-selling, yeah. famous, well-respected figure in British literary life. It's interesting. And, and um, you know, she was slightly disparaged, wasn't she, by Virginia Woolf, stringy old Rose Macaulay. Yeah. But they had they had a, a slightly yeah. they were frenemies. Not that they yeah. would have called it that. <laughs> but they were, but it, weren't it, they? It's, it is the, the mystery of, of, of I mean you can sort of see I haven't read enough of Rose Macaulay to, to, to judge, but you can see that she's not maybe expanding the form in the way that Virginia Woolf was doing. She doesn't fit as neatly into it one's sense of, you know, the evolution of, of the literary novel as Virginia Woolf. But boy, if you want to know about what happened between eighteen eighty in 1923 while sending up the generational saga at the same time it's a it, good it, trick to be able a, to pull off an amazing trick to pull off and also through the core of the book you can feel that there is this sort of she's evolving this philosophy at the idea that the past is it's it's a great hymn to long durée isn't it it's the idea that if actually if you take a long perspective so it's a book that's just I mean, fizzing with uh, detail, but also it has a, it does have a really interesting core. And although she's sending up the family saga, you do end up really caring about the characters rather more than you. It's really entertaining, considering that in fact the characters spend relatively little time yes. talking to one another, interacting right. or affecting one another's lives. Right? right. Yes. I mean, I think this is a book where the main character is England. And, and the characters are merely there because she felt, oh, I need some people in this book. And yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, oh, I'm yes. writing a novel. Right. I need some people. Well, I'll, I'll read the blurb because the blurb on this is from the Virago Modern Classics edition. This sets up the book really well, actually, I think. So um, in terms of the characters and in terms of what you're saying, Nancy. It is shortly before Christmas in the year 1879, the 42nd year of Queen Victoria's reign, when the curtain rises on the Garden family, on Mr Garden, a clergyman of many denominations, about to lose his faith for the umpteenth time, and on his selfless devoted wife, and on their six children, about to be launched on the adult world. There is Victoria, a pre-Raphaelite beauty intent on marriage. Morris, shaking his fist at the injustices of the world. Stanley, a follower of Ruskin and Morris, doing good as radical fashion dictates. Irving, a lusty young capitalist, and Una, born for happy marriage and maternity. All are watched from the sidelines by their sister, Rome. Detached, intelligent, urbane, she observes three generations of her family strut and fret their hour upon the stage. To her, their sound and fury signify nothing. But to us, the memory of Rome's one brief love affair strikes the final note of truth, defiantly affirming that it is better to have loved and lost. That's one of the best blurbs we've ever read it's on that list. It's absolutely actually. brilliant blurb, isn't it? Do you think Carmen Khalil wrote that? I don't know, but somebody who, somebody, somebody brilliant who wrote that. Well, they took this original blurb and added and you know tweaked mm. it enough so that this is not the same blurb as that, but... It contains a lot of what's in that one. It, it just says, shortly before Christmas in the year 1879, the curtain rises on the Garden family. Mr. Garden, his selfless wife, and their six children, whom we watch grow up, fall in love, marry, and take on the world. But that no, doesn't, that's no, awful. They, that's kind of you know. sanded down. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. Now, I was saying how hard it is to get hold of some of Rose Macaulay's books. And in fact, we were talking about, Nancy, when we were arranging for you to come and do yes, this. that I couldn't that, find that it. I was saying, well, maybe we should do The World My Wilderness, because I love that book so much, even though we've already talked about it. And you were saying you found it hard to get hold yes. of, right? Well, yes. not in time for the podcast, but... Here's my gift to you. Oh, uh, thank you. You gave me the action figure. I'm giving you a copy of The World of My Wilderness. <laughs> thank you. 
which I now just buy habitually whenever I see it so that I can give it to people. Although it has just been republished by Virago, so it is in print at the moment. What was interesting about reading The World My Wilderness and then going back to Told by an Idiot is even though there is 35 years between... 37 years between them? Yeah, 37 years between them. Macaulay, who wrote no fiction for 10 years from 1940 to 1950, having written basically a novel every 18 months from... 1906 or something onwards the great love of her life died and she lost her library imagine that in an air raid during the second world war and all his love letters and there is a short story called miss anstruther's letters which you can find in a volume that's out of print now again virago called wave me goodbye which was published in 1989 a collection of women's writing about World War II, which has Rose McCauley in it, Elizabeth Taylor, Elizabeth Bowen, Barbara Pym, Stevie Smith, Rosamund Lohman, Jean Rees, etc., etc. And that story is absolutely wonderful and heartbreaking. But clearly, McCauley lost her, yeah. her will for fiction because she had other things that she needed to try and address. She writes, but she moves into non-fiction for several years. What was interesting about comparing Told by an Idiot with the Worldwide Wilderness, is they are recognisably the same author, but The World My Wilderness is unquestionably written with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. It, 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 it has that kind of list-making joie de vivre that we've heard in the bits that we've read already, but she also knows when to lean back a bit more. And she's writing about darker things. Although there's some darkness in this book too, in Told by an Idiot. Yes. I mean, the other thing about this book, it seems to me, is it's very, it is, um, I think A.N. Wilson in the introduction says, you know, it's, it's saved from straight-she-like bitchiness by the fact that she does like some of the characters a lot. Mm. Although her father, the father in the book, is a sort of a, an absurd man who, whose faith keeps changing. I mean, she struggled with her faith as well, I think, you know, but didn't turn her back on it. I mean, I think that Virginia Woolf's straight, she was, there, there was a definite thing that the Victorians were just buffoons and their their mm. pomposity and their, their kind of, you know, world-domineering arrogance needed to be pricked. She's much more nuanced in her view of it. Also, there's a wonderful thing in Told by an Idiot, a recurring joke, but not just a joke, a recurring theme of the idea of things being cyclical. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Things come round again. There's nothing new under the sun. And there's a little section here, very near the beginning of the book. Uh, this is in the Victorian section. Yeah. Youth, it was said at this period, as at other periods before and since. Youth, in the last quarter of the 19th century, has broken with tradition. It is no longer willing to accept forms and formulae only on account of their age. At what stage in history youth ever did this is never explained. It has set out on a voyage of inquiry, and finding some things which are doubtful and others which are insufficient, is searching for forms of experience more in harmony with the realities of life and knowledge. These are the actual words of a writer in the 1920s, but they were used in effect also in the 1870s and many other decades. Yeah, and that, that exact phrase, that formulation of a description of the young, crops up in every section. Yes. In a cumulatively hilarious way. That's one of the things that I love about Perhaps her Perhaps we should writing. say that the book is divided into into sections. It starts, it's Victorian. Fantasy Eckler. Fantasy Eckler, Edwardian, and then Georgian, which is essentially the kind of, the, the accession of, of George the Fifth, is it? It also runs up to, deals with, uh, in, with incredible economy and the moves on from... War. Yes, I marked that one yeah. too. You That's could, an give us a little, give us a, give us a little I'm bit of that, going, Nancy. I'm not going to go on about. <laughs> First of all, well, no, I thought that was yes, what amazing. a remarkable thing to yes. be writing in 1923. She yeah. suffered quite badly during the war. The though. Georgian period in the book is is divided up into three periods: circus, smash, yeah. and debris. And you've got the beginning of Smash This is there. the beginning of Smash. All there, um, it is enough, if not too much, to say that there was a great and dreadful war in Europe and that nightmare and chaos and the abomination of desolation held sway for four horrid years. All there was of civilization, whatever we mean by that unsatisfactory, undefined relative word, suffered irretrievable damage. All there was of 
greed, of cruelty, of barbarism, of folly, incompetence, meanness, valor, heroism, selfishness, littleness, self-sacrifice, and hate rose to the call in each belligerent country and showed itself for what it was. And then goes Isn't on that, from there. It's amazing. Yes, amazing. I agree. Amazing. I also read um, The Towers of Trebizond. Yeah. Now you've read that before, I haven't you? I love the Towers of Trevisan. I have to say that the new, the newest American edition by from Farrar Strauss has a terrific cover, a, a kind mm. of comic cover of my aunt Dot sitting on the camel, <laughs> uh, taking mm. her tea, which I think is a, a very come hither cover. One of the most famous job. lines of. Late 20th yes. century literature. Yeah. Oh, take my camel, camel dear, said, said my, my aunt Dot, Dot, as she climbed down from the animal on her return from high I mass. That's, that's, right that. there. that's right there with the earthly powers, isn't it? And the, uh, you know, with the, oh, that, the archbishop that, that, and his catamite. And his catamite, right. <laughs> I found Towers of Trebizond very interesting. First half is a bit of a romp. Second half is not a romp at all. Mm-hmm. And becomes, again, thought this was amusing, John, disfigured by Catholicism, <laughs> as you said about the end of the affair. But it's not disfigured by Catholicism, but the extent to which it is willing to move from the register of a romp with a camel to a serious discussion about comparative religious belief. Mysticism and adultery in particular. Which and it has that which final chapter, right. final chapter just like the thing that you were just reading, Nancy, where she suddenly switches into a mode that... Could have been lulled into a false sense of thinking, well, she can only write in this slightly larky way. And then when she wants to, she can plumb these real depths of restraint, you know. My experience of reading Towers of Trebizond was that every time I read it, I I change my opinion about whether Laurie is ever male or female. Oh, yeah. Ah, You know, and I think when I first read it, I thought Laurie was male. And then I now the second time female, and then I went back to male. I think I the last time I thought Laurie was male. But that's the thing, that's a fascinating thing about Macaulay, though. You know, that in, in The World My Wilderness, the young girl, Barbary Denison, the heroine, behaves very like a boy. Mm. In Told by an Idiot, yes. yeah. the gender issues are never far from the surface. Yeah. I've got Sarah Lefanu's biography of Rose Macaulay here, and she makes the point quite early on that in most of Rose Macaulay's novels, there is a female character or heroine with a boy's name. And here there's at least two, yeah. Rome and Stanley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. brilliantly. Of course, yeah. The children are all named after the particular faith <laughs> that the father is going through at the, at the moment. It's, it's, it's fabulous Rome. And Una, uh, yes, <laughs> becomes a Unitarian. A uh, Irving, because I, I thought you'd find this funny. This is, she wrote to a friend, I think, about Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, <laughs> oh. which we talked about last time. And this is, this is what Rose Macaulay wrote. I found it disfigured by Catholicism. She did say that. <laughs> the people are all rather low types and not convincing. And the religion in it, such as it is, is brought down to a very trivial plane by two rather absurd miracles at the end, which are supposed to show the heroine's sanctity, though there are no other signs of this. <laughs> what a mess his mind must be. Nothing in it scarcely but religion and sex, and these all mixed up together. And on being invited to one of Green's parties, she wrote, On Tuesday I am bidden to a party at Graham Green's. Wouldn't it be interesting if at that party I was surrounded by GG characters? Evil men, racing touts, false clergymen, <laughs> drunken priests, and with Gigi in the middle of them, talking about sin. Oh, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's as good a description of Green. And I love Green, but, yeah, you know. That's brilliant. The character of Rome is, is sort of is changed by the, the, the fact that the, the, the brief, not very easy love affair of hers is, without giving away the spoiler, but it does, he dies. And she, <laughs> she never... She never <laughs> She never remarries. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> but what it turns her into is, I think the two most interesting characters in the book are the mother and Rome. They're kind of the, the heroines because the mother is, there's a brilliant moment. It's my favourite, I think my favourite moment in the book where he comes back and he's decided to go back to Catholicism and she just says, no, no, yeah. I'm not. No more. <laughs> no more. I've had enough. I can't I'm go not, with you. I, I can't go. And he, she said, I'm, I just, you know, I, I've been with you all. I kind of feel some things and other things. I don't, it's just, 
you know, and he said, is that a problem for you? Because she's amazing. She's amazingly selfless and wonderful. And uh, uh, towards the end of the book, Rome, who I think is the, the, the daughter that most resembles her, say how much she misses her mother. Yes. And in, in, uh, again, I won't, give, I won't give that spoiler away, but it's they're connected in, in more than just temperament. But I was just going to read, in her absolutely high, and this is, I think, her, this is a brilliant, this is Rose McCauley at her best, being both philosophical and very, very funny and moving the story on. This is a, a, an exchange between Rome, the cool, monocle-wearing, slightly slightly sexually ambiguous, I think, yeah. you never oh, quite, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, modern, sort of bordering on cynical, but I think she's basically just deeply intelligent and can't stand reductivism of any kind. She's the mistress of paradox. With the slightly glib Denman Crofts, who is the kind of, who is sort of a, a literateur and a playwright. So she says, I wonder, Rome mused, if posterity will really be so diligent and so intelligent as their ancestors seem to think. People always say they write for posterity when they're not appreciated at the moment. They seem to imagine posterity as a smug and spectacled best scholar, spending its time delving among the chronicles of wasted years in the reading room of the British Museum and hailing with rapture the literary efforts of their ancestors. Whereas I, said Denman, see posterity as a leaping savage, enjoying <laughs> nameless orgies among the ruins of our civilization, <laughs> but not enjoying literature. Possibly even there will be no posterity. The debacle of our civilization, and it's obviously too good to last, may mean the debacle of the world itself. I hope so. Abba, la posterité, I say. <laughs> Who wants it? I scorn to write for it, or to plant horrible little baby trees for it, or to suck up to it in any way whatsoever. Crude and uncultured savage, vive l'aujourd'hui. And I, said Rome, see posterity as a being precisely like ourselves. It will read every morning in its newspapers, just as we do, that our relations with France are strained that so many people have been murdered, born, divorced, married, that such and such a war is in progress, that such and such a law has been passed, or speech made, or book published, and it will know, just as we do, that none of it matters in the least. I've no grudge against posterity. Let it have its little day. <laughs> oh, that's so uh, yeah. wonderful. Yes. Yeah. I've got a copy of a book here, a biography, the first biography of Rose Macaulay, by Constance Babington Smith. And there is in the back an appendix called The Pleasures of Knowing Rose Macaulay, oh. where she asked writers who had known Macaulay the great for their... Oh. I was just going to give you a couple of them uh, by writers who have a place in Batlisted's heart. Here is Rosamond Lehman writing about the pleasure of knowing Rose Macaulay. She says, she wrote, She was forever in transit, physically, intellectually, spiritually, energetically not eating, not drinking or sleeping, so it seemed. Yet such was her transparency and charity of spirit that she seemed universally available to her friends. She has been called childlike, but to me she suggested youth, a girl of that pure eccentric English breed which perhaps no longer exists, sexless yet not unfeminine, naive yet shrewd, and although romantic, stripped of all veils of self-interest and self-involvement. I cannot write of her tenderness and understanding of the grief of others, fruit of deep personal suffering triumphantly surmounted. No one had better cause than I to know and value it. Her last letter arrived the morning before the morning of her death. One of the things it discussed was, quote, our corrupting profession. I was meditating on her incorruptibility when the news reached me. With the first piercing pang came the thought, but we've all just seen her, just been talking to her. How like her to slip off and run lightly, unhampered, without backward glance, straight into her death, straight through it. Brilliant. What a wonderful thing. And also, I've got here one of the other writers recording his impressions of Rose Macaulay, as only he can, Anthony Pohl. <laughs> Not long after the war, we gave a party and the French husband of our daily came in to help wash the glasses. Who was the lady who chained her bicycle to the area railings, he asked afterwards, <laughs> rightly suspecting that he was on the track of some new form of English eccentricity. Rose was known to be addicted to this practice, somehow reminiscent, vicariously through a machine, of the former demonstrations of militant suffragettes. 
he was told her name. Ah, he said, if only I had known you were going to invite Miss Macaulay, I could have brought Potterism with me and she could have signed it. <laughs> After hearing who she was, the fettered bicycle seemed to cause him no further surprise. His familiarity with her novels well suggests the wide range of her literary popularity. Mm. And I, I felt that, that idea of the wide range of her literary popularity. This is one of those occasions on Batlisted. I loved Told by an Idiot. I loved uh, The World My Wilderness. I loved, with a few reservations, The Towers of Trebizond. Yeah. But no one book does justice to the the fecundity of the personality of the writer involved here. Yeah, it's, strong. it's interesting. Those are both brilliant me memories of her. You do get the feeling that she was... She feels like somebody who would be... I mean, you really want to spend a, d a day with listening to and talking mm -hmm. to. There's a sort of generosity in her in her kind of attitude to, to, to her characters and her... There's a, there is a naivety in there as well that she can write. She writes naivety incredibly well, the Imogen character that we've already right. discussed. And there's a, one of my favourite passages when they get onto the circle line and shout poetry out with her brother mm. kind of yeah. loudly. And, the, and she, so there's some sneery girl who said, well, what's the point of doing that? It just goes round. He said, but it's the, that's the whole point that it goes round. You know, well, no, a train is for getting from A to B. She's sort of, you know, well, obviously you've, you've lost the, the point. She's very good on children, although yeah. very, not very, she's very down on marriage. She marriage is very doesn't... <laughs> down on marriage, yeah. That's a whole, I mean, the thing is, yeah. we, we got two hours to go, right? <laughs> There's a whole other topic, yeah. the attitude to yeah. marriage. Nancy, you were talking to me earlier, you do lots of, you know, you're the librarians, you're the super librarian and you recommend books professionally. Yes. You were saying something fascinating to me. You, you've listened to quite a few episodes of this I thing. I have indeed. Which we are, <laughs> we are delighted and astonished by. And you identified for me what you felt our respective reading tastes were. Well, so it seems to me that people, when, when they are looking for something to read, what they want to do is, is re-experience a pleasurable reading from the past. I mean, they, they mm. don't want, it's not that they're looking that's, for a similar, yeah. they're not looking for a, a, a plot, the same plot at all. They're looking for those other, I call them doorways yeah. to get into a book. And, um, and so when I think about Andy's reading and the books that he talks about at the beginning, I think that what Andy reads for, or is, is most interesting in discovering in a book is the prose, a, a, a quality of the prose, and the people. You know, it's the three-dimensionality of the characters, the sort of sense of coming to, to know them. And, and a good way to find books, a really sort of quick and dirty way of finding books that, that have that focus or that big doorway of the people is to look for books in which the title is the name of the character. <laughs> So there you have less. That brings you back to less. It brings you Brilliant. back. Oh, you're good. I mean, I, <laughs> Sabbath theater. Sabbath yes, theater. Yeah, mm. about a boy, Nick Hornby. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about that, but I like you it. know that was you know there it is. So it's either going to be a Melrose. character. Yes, if we refer to yes. all five of those yes. books as Patrick right. Melrose, you're, you know, you're spot on. So so there's that, and and <laughs> the, <laughs> and John, what I think that you are are really interested in and what you love is place is um you know that whole sort of sense of of the place almost being like you know all those books the place is another character in yeah, this yeah. book all that kind of thing yeah, interesting. but it's you true. know <laughs> i mean all those books that you that you talk about about you know those things that you, those way out of print books that yeah. you talk about that are all about the place and the time yeah. and even this passage that you read from the biblio uh, memoir yeah I mean, it was about the beach house in yeah, a yeah. way, you know, and that's sort of bringing that no, scene I, yeah, to life. Absolutely, and the, and the names, it's yeah. names, and names of places. Right. And yeah. Really yeah. Nancy, never use your powers for evil. We're going to have to wind up in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to read one. I want to leave the last words to Rose McCauley. I've, I've got another tiny thing from this wonderful book of essays called Personal Pleasures. As I said earlier, one of the essays is about ignorance, the pleasures of ignorance, and it's broken into subsections. And the second one is Ignorance of Current Literature. So I'm just going to read that because it seems appropriate. No, I am afraid I have not read that either. It's good, you say. I'm sure you're right. But I have no time for all these novels and things. 
I cannot imagine how you make time for them. You find they're worth it. They do not look good. Not that I see them, but they do not sound good from the advertisements and reviews. Not that I read advertisements and reviews. I like to keep myself clear from all this second-rate stuff. Am I not afraid of missing something good? Well, I feel that the danger of reading something bad outweighs that risk. Yes, as you point out, I contribute to current literature myself, but then I scarcely read my own stuff. And the point is, I get money for writing it. (laughs) If anyone gave me money for reading, that would be a different matter. (laughs) That is brilliant. Um, So, unfortunately, that is all we have time for. We'll end resisting generalities, as Rose Rome Garden would have it, all generalities about human beings are nonsense anyway. But I just have to draw your attention very quickly to this week's Unbound project worth backing. It's Jonathan Mead's Pedro and Ricky Come Again. A collection of the inimitable Mead's writing drawn from the last 30 years. Mead's on the page is even more eclectic, splenetic and erudite than he is on TV. If essays on cliché, the ubiquitous abuse of the word iconic, the inexcusability of nationalism, new ageism, Victorian artist studios, John Lennon shopping lists, and the wine we call Black Tower. If that sounds appealing, you'll, you'll, you'll surely want to make this book happen. Remember, if you pledge for it, or for any of the other 359 Unbound projects currently live on the site, you will get free postage on that pledge by entering the special code PEARL as you check out. <laughs> And if you'd like to support Backlisted by sponsoring the show, getting your brand product heard by thousands of lovely, intelligent, deeply well-read people, then visit our new website, Backlisted FM, and hit the sponsor button to find out more. So thank you to Nancy. I'm sorry this podcast is only five hours long. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Nancy. Thank you to our producer today, Alana Chance. Thank you to Unbound, the founders of this particular feast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we're still on Twitter, Facebook, and Boundless, but our new permanent home is backlisted.fm. That's it. Thank you for listening. Uh, We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye. 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 That was great. Oh, that was so much fun. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.